0: Hello lovely listeners. Now before we get into today's show, I just wanted to tell you that Cyclist isn't just a podcast. No, Cyclist is also a beautiful print magazine. It's packed full of all the best rides from around the world, the newest bikes and kit, and loads of in-depth articles featuring guests just like on today's show. So head on over to cyclist.co.uk slash subscriptions and check out our latest Cyclist Magazine subscription offers. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast. I'm your host, James Spender. And today, I'm incredibly lucky to be blessed with the presence of Robin Davison, who is not only an incredible writer for Cyclist Magazine, cyclist.co.uk, because yes, we have a website, but she's our resident pro expert. So, hey, Robin, how's it going?
1: Hi, James. It's good. Thank you for calling me an expert. I'm sure many people would maybe disagree, but I love that it came from you. How are you?
0: I'm good. I'm good. And I would definitely say that, especially next to me, you truly look like an expert, a kind of almost savant level expert in the world of professional cycling. Because even though I'm a cycling journalist and I love bicycles, I don't know that much about pro sports. It's an awful lot to follow. I've got to say, and given that, we've got a whole year to look back on. So I was wondering if I could ask you two questions. Number one, what kind of transfers have happened this season and where might they take us? And number two, what's your favourite moment? What were your favourite moments looking back over 2023?
1: There's some cracking questions. I would say in terms of transfers, the biggest one and the one that sparked the most rumours and had people inspecting, like, brick elements of buildings to figure out where he was going to. It's probably Primoz Roglic, who moved from yumbo Visna to Borra Handsgröm. I don't know if you know that, James. Did you know that?
0: I know that Borra Handsgröm makes showers.
1: That's all you need to know, mate. <laughs> You're
2: good.
1: <laughs> anyway, back to team transfers. <laughs> it's uh, It's not a transfer per se, but one other major extension, shall we say, is, of course, Mark Cavendish, who signed a one-year deal, an extension with Estania Kazakhstan. Of course, I'm very excited to see if he gets win number 35 at the Tour de France.
0: Yeah, that is going to be big. I mean, I wouldn't like to say, but I'm going to ask you because you, you, you will know. So I'm going to go with this down the bookies. What, what do you say, yay or no?
1: I will say yay.
0: Next up. Best moments of 2023, please. I mean, there's loads. So I'm not going to say you have to order them. Just give us a couple.
1: Of course. On the men's side, I would say Bahrain victorious is Maté morovic After stage 19 of the Tour de France, in which he inevitably won ahead of Acaspa asquerin It was very close. I mean, it's that moment after a stage where the air is just full of doubt and suspension. Because I don't recall seeing a replay until like it was announced. Like We just saw kind of a, a slow-mo view. No one could really tell who'd won. And after, he gave a very emotional interview. And it's one of those that will stick with me for years and years and probably until the rest of time. My favorite women's moment, I would say Alison Jackson winning Paris-Roubaix fans was so enthralling and so entertaining to watch, not only the race itself, but her afterwards, where she's just so exhausted, but then she gets up and she's dancing. It's just, it was such an enjoyable moment, I think, for everyone, even if maybe your favourite or the one you were hoping to win was in a group behind. Like, the joy that radiated from Alison Jackson was just, like, I'm smiling now when I think about it. I love cycling. It's just so beautiful sometimes. Like, did you watch Paris-Roubaix?
2: Uh,
0: again, <laughs> I'm terribly sorry. My, 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 my excuse is that this year I had a child, so I can't watch any TV. But again, I do, I've, because what a tenuous thing to suddenly drop the fact that we're also a magazine again, but I've literally just been proofreading something that you've put together, but it has a picture of Alison Jackson picking up the massive, the ridiculously massive cobble that they give to riders as a trophy to be like, hey, you know, you just done like the grueling, most grueling race in cycling. Do you want to pick up this thing that probably weighs about twenty kilos and hold it above your head in front of loads of people?
1: It's so funny. I was there in the in the velodrome when Lizzie Deignan won, and there was that split second before she kind of raised it above her head, and, and it was this look of realization that, oh god, that's actually heavier than I thought.
2: <laughs> and it's yeah. it, you're
1: right. It's so funny because the concept of having to hold that up after so many kilometers of cobblestones and just intense pain, you're exhausted. And I don't know about you, but cyclists aren't regarded for having the most insane upper body strength of any athletes. But (laughs) it's just such a funny combination. I couldn't do it.
0: No, absolutely not. And I couldn't ride paris bay either. I mean, just looking at Arenberg gives me the heebie-jeebies. But that does sort of bring us nicely on to our guest this week, Lee Timmis, who is the fastest man across Europe by bicycle. He's just written a book, The Race of Truth, about his experiences. So we chatted a little bit about that. But he is a guy that personifies all those things that we've just been talking about there, that kind of humanity, that approach to cycling, which is, it is beautiful, but my goodness, it's hard a sacrifice, and someone that, as we find out in the interview, you know, he's he's gone through a lot to get to where he is. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome, or we'd like to welcome, Lee Timmis to the show.
1: We're joined today with Lee Timmis. Lee, how are you feeling today?
2: Oh, I'm pretty good. Actually, I'm really good. It was my birthday of the weekend.
1: Happy birthday. <laughs> oh, nice.
2: Thank you so much.
1: How did you celebrate?
2: You know what? I, uh, I went to a cyclocross race and we're recording this the weekend after the storms have just been in. So it was um, cancelled. They were adamant it wasn't going to be. It was going to be that swamp fest. It was going to be great, but no, it was cancelled. So I went to a second one after that and I got a punch on the second lap. Denied. It just wasn't meant to be. Yeah.
1: Happy
2: birthday. I hope you got down, <laughs> Thank you. I hope you got down to
0: the pub and uh, sunk a few pints to c- commiserate and celebrate in equal measure. Absolutely. Far too many drinks, far too much food over the weekend. Yeah. So I didn't realize as well as being an ultra distance cyclist of some repute, not just ultra distance as in, you know, you ride distance, you go very, very far. You've done it for incredibly long periods of time. Anyone that is new to um, your endeavors would be incredibly blown away to know that you spent seven years, seven years cycling around the world
2: which is a total of
0: 51,000 miles. Is that right?
2: Oh, you're bigger me up. You're bigger me up. It was 44,000. So 70,000 kilometers. If we go in that, it's way better.
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, we, yeah, we run everything in this country is obviously Imperial, but for cycling, for some reason, it's metric. So yeah, we'll run with 70,000 K. <laughs> so that's just insane. But you also break records. And I didn't know that you raced as well. But before we kind of like jump into what the... Book that you've just released, The Race of Truth, is about, which is your your latest, biggest record, I suppose you, you would look at it like that, which is having cycled across Europe in 16 days, 10 hours, and 45 minutes, smashing the previous record by some eight days. How did you get to the point where you thought I'm gonna get on my bike and I am just gonna cycle? Not you know, I'm not just gonna be a weekend warrior or do a bit of training in my
2: spare time, I'm gonna ride. It kind of it kind of grew. I think that, like most cyclists, I found it when I was young. I think this is something that's sort of consistent within a lot of athletes as well. Maybe, Robin, you might be able to feed in on this from that sports psychology background. But a lot of athletes find themselves in a the sport and maybe go through something traumatic. For me, it wasn't really what you would class as like a traumatic experience, but parents divorcing, finding myself in this kind of beautiful way to express myself, but also to escape in cycling. So geographically, you can just kind of move to a place which you feel comfortable in. So I used to cross the city. I live in, I lived in Derby, still live in Derby. I used to go across town after school and meet up with friends and we'd watch these videos and then we'd learn tricks in the car parks and go up into the woods and have these amazing days of just kind of being in this moment of flow, isn't it? Like where you 're so engrossed in avoiding the trees, getting over the rocks, the roots, the climbs, the descents, that time just disappears you don 't like it 's almost as though real life doesn 't have the time to catch up with you so that 's what got me into cycling, and I loved it. I loved like the evenings and the weekends of just being out in the elements and and enjoying that the outdoors, but it kind of got compromised when I went to university, and I went off in this pursuit of success. I guess it was that success that I feel maybe a lot of people would understand that you you think that society expects of you, that um you've got to, I don't know, get a great job and good money and respect from people. And so was, in my mind at that point, cycling detracted from it. It didn't help me on the path to success. And so I gave it up. And it was at that time, and maybe you want to go into a bit more depth later about mental health, but at that time, yeah, it really I really kind of sunk into that focused so much on work and this pursuit of success and neglected everything that was actually important to me, that I struggled with depression and anxiety. And it was only through a string of events at that time that I actually re-found cycling. Um, I had this opportunity to go off on an adventure to Iceland with a couple of guys that I was working with. who we were on motorbikes at the time. And it took me to the most amazing places like volcanoes and glaciers and deserts and wild camping and it was just spectacular and it opened my eyes to this amazing world and I reignited my love for cycling, that freedom of two wheels, these other places that you could go to and I'd left cycling for a long time then actually but it came back to me with this feeling of escape and adventure and suddenly two wheels was me again, it was my identity and so at that point I decided to ride a bike around the world.
1: And I know you started with mountain biking and now you're predominantly road. But do you ever, do you ever go back to your
2: roots, so to speak? Oh, nice pun, the roots. I yeah. actually didn't. You know what? <laughs> yes,
1: I did mean that.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, actually, it's so, so bizarre. So um, I, you know, I was always mountain bikes when I was younger. And then it was that round the world adventure that took me off on a touring bike. I came back from that and I was welcomed back into Derby by a local cycling club and they all rode road bikes. And at the end of it, I was invited to join the club. And um, it was really kind of scary, anxiety inducing, like to be surrounded by a group of cyclists all riding along quite quickly by my standards for sure. And so I joined and loved it, realized that cycling with the club was super cool and everyone was really nice. And actually that you know, riding with a bike club, I think it's the same for a lot of people. It doesn't end up being about the cycling. It's about seeing new places, talking to people, you've got shared interests, so you can share your thoughts and what you're doing and the trails you're riding. But also riding side by side, you can open up quite easily and discuss some of those stresses, the things that you're going through, stop for a coffee. Like it's really good. Everyone looked after each other. And that kind of grew over the next few years. I became a road cyclist But it's not until recently I've had that desire to get back into like my roots, like you you said, because there is kind of a difference for me. I think that road cycling is very much, you've got time and you've got space. There's a lot of time for sort of contemplation. It's almost a bit like meditation, isn't it? Like you can focus on your breathing. You've got the repetition of the pedals, the left, right, left, right. And you can think about... where you've been, where you're going, like, yeah, physically on the bike, but in life as well, how did you get here and the, the directions that you've taken, every junction that you've taken. And I've wanted to get back to that feeling of flow. I, want, I love that um, the bike can be an escape from everything. And sometimes, with the, like the pressures of work, the pressures of life, it's just nice to have that time and space that's yours and you're at your own pace, going to your own places. And, and the mountain bike is it for me. It, it takes me back to something really special. So this is a very clunky, but
0: thank you very much for laying this tenuous um, link for me. A question I wanted to ask you, um, and always occurs to me whenever I hear about ultra cyclists, or ultra distance runners as well as the same thing, is, yeah, I get the flow state thing. Like I think that's something that loads of cyclists can really relate to, and I, I certainly can. But I go out for riding, you know, I go out for a ride two, three hours maximum, and there's a point where I start thinking, I quite like to be doing something else, even though I love this. What on earth do you think about? So you're doing like 14 hours a day or something on a bike when you're doing one of your challenges. What are you thinking about? Because I'm assuming you're not just, I don't know, listening to podcast. Well, maybe you are listening to podcasts. I don't know. But how do you just keep yourself engaged? I, I suppose because it's you know, it's not just as simple as pedaling, and then
2: suddenly everything's roses. No, not at all. I think it's the biggest challenge, to be honest, on ultra endurance. Um, and I'm going to use your tenuous link and, and like uh, double tenuous <laughs> you, <laughs> to link into the book. Um, it's kind of, it becomes the tagline for the book that you could be the fastest cyclist in the world on the start line, but it means nothing unless you've got a mind that's strong enough to get you to the finish line. And I think ironically, right at the beginning of the project... I genuinely thought that ultra endurance cycling was just about strong legs, strong heart, strong lungs. You've got to be physically strong to get across a continent. But it is exactly like you've said, James, like it's those hours, relentless, repetitive hours in the saddle and all you want to do. You want to be anywhere except there. And how do you keep going? And you get a lot of thoughts. Like I quite often would... End up thinking of, I don't know, is the how are the team doing? Are we still on track with the budget? Is that squeak on the motorhome going to resolve itself? Is the wheel gonna fall off? How how are we doing with our targets? Like there were so many things that you can sort of doubt. And it was one of the things that I actually didn't really fully become was like a lot of the psychological interventions that we put in place, they take a lot of repetition, they take time to become it. You can learn things, but it takes a long time to actually Instill them in your personality. And one of them was being where your feet are, like just being in the moment. And what is the best thing that you can do for yourself in that moment? The best thing that you can do is be have an eye on the road, I don't know, that 10 to 20 meters ahead of you, keeping an eye on the curbs, the routes, the the lines that you're following. But quite often, yeah, I'd be wondering what's going to happen, what's what's taking us to this place. In a lot of ways, it took me a whole year to prepare that record. All of the fundraising, building the team, putting everything together, the strategy, every w- the way that every pound had been spent in the in the build-up. And when I had to hand that over the to the team and just become the cyclist, I found that really difficult. And so we had a lot of interventions in place that revolved around music. Obviously, I will be downloading the cyclist podcast oh, on, yeah. my next, on my next on my next attempt. <laughs> Anything that you could do to kind of distract yourself and keep you in that moment. And and I found that music was one of those things. Like, I don't know if this is just me, but a lot of people that I speak to as well also get it, that music can take you to a different place. It's got It's almost evocative like a smell, isn't it? Like it will take you to a memory, a party that you're at, or a relationship that you're in, or it reminds you of a person, or, or there's something attached to music. And so it can take you out of these incredibly painful experiences or monotonous experiences and put you somewhere else it was the same with like messages from friends and family like to remember that it's not just you and it's a really hard thing you you really did nail it when you said it's 14 hours alone in the saddle I really thought that there would be more time spent with the team you know doing it supported but it was very rare that they were actually behind me they'd have to do so many other things there was finding the food, preparing the nutrition, finding the next place we were going to stay, filling up with water, all the logistical things, as well as the evidencing, the filmmaking. There was so much to do. And so you spend these very long blocks of time on your own. And you can start to wonder why you're doing it. Like, what's the point of this? Nobody's watching. I'm alone out here. Very similar to some of the struggles that I've had with mental health, actually. Nobody knows what I'm going through. No one knows this pain. And And I think that that's one of the beautiful things that I went through, realising that actually you're not alone. There are so many people supporting you and and that everything that you do does impact the people around you and the other way around. Everything they do impacts you as well. And
1: in terms of the crew you're talking about, I know that in the build-up you worked with sports psychologists, nutritionists, and then on the road you had friends in a camper van like because you got to make the switch before Russia and all that. But I think it kind of goes without saying that those people were probably worth their weight in gold and helped you through the race across Europe.
2: Yeah, more than just the race across Europe, really, Robin. Like, um, they helped me to realize the best version of myself. It's, yeah, it was amazing. So in the year of preparation, there was a core team of four people. There was a physiologist, a psychologist, nutritionist, and a physiotherapist. And we became like family, Like they were all there to support me and we had great relationships. We became like family in that time, but also they were there to challenge me and they pushed me. And one of the big differences between cycling around the world and breaking the world record was that out there in the world, things would happen and I just had to react to them. And I had time out there to figure out my own coping mechanisms and my response sort of strategies or the way that I would deal with them. But if you're on a mission to break a world record, you have to know everything that you're going to be up against and then how to get through it as quickly as possible. So you've got a solution prepared and you're through it and you are you don't stop. So through the preparation, we had to dig into a lot of the things that maybe I hadn't dealt with when I was younger that I probably should have done in counseling, but I, I don't think I was ready back then. I think one of the beautiful things that a challenge offers you is a reason to find the best Version of yourself, and the reason to look at some of those areas that maybe you've you've not been brave enough to look at before. It certainly was that for me, and so yeah, I was forced to look at some of the my psychological responses, um, emotional reactions. I remember initially saying to the psychologist, "I like, emotional reactions. Why am I going to need that? I'm not going to fall in love out there." But actually, that's the thing that holds a group of people together. You know, when things are going wrong, if you react in an angry way if you're if you just fly off the handle and and shout to people that that ruins teams and that would have been the end of the record so we did a lot of work in preparation for that there was some like really good examples in the book that you might bring up in a bit outside of that there was a massive team of other people as well from like sponsors and aerodynamicists and bike builders and clothing designers. There's so many people that get involved and the support that they added to it was worth, like you said, it was their weight in gold. It was way more than the money that they put into it. But then the people that were out on the road was, was different. Again, it wasn't about preparation. It's almost like you take this lab-based prepared strategy and then you build a team who can then translate that into something that can work on the road. They've got to be able to adapt to all these crisis moments when things go wrong. How do they manage the situation and it became very much about personalities and and the way that they interacted with me was just amazing as well you know when somebody's on the edge and they're exhausted they've given everything that they can and a team comes around you to to get even more like for me that was really special
3: Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join reverse engineers a training plan specific to your needs.
0: But the really smart thing is how join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride, or it's an interval day, then join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal.
3: It's really simple to use and workout sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant
0: workouts. Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month Join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. Some total, yeah, about 16 and a half days on the road and you kick off at something like 5am in the morning. And I'm assuming, you know, it's probably sleep the night before may not have been great. I don't know. But you're you're in it and I suspect that everything, you know, everything's prepped. So it's probably going quite well, but then there will be that point where you have that first big drama. What was that first big drama and how did you guys solve it or
2: circumvent the drama and get back to the schedule? I guess it started with small things. Um, The big dramas didn't really happen until over halfway, but it's the little things start to kind of like just come undone at the seams a little bit, I guess. Because you set off with a strategy, like you expect so much of yourself. Everything's been prepared for so long. And I think the expectations are one of the things that I've had to come to accept through doing these challenges. But yeah, we set off at 5 a.m. from Cabo de Roca. It's a lighthouse on the, the coast of Portugal. It was darkness. You just hear the the waves crashing at the cliffs behind you. It was yeah, that beautiful picture that I'd imagined for so long and climbed up into the portuguese hills and the sun came up and cast this pink light over these beautiful clouds that we were cycling above already and i was like wow we're doing so well it's incredible and it wasn't i guess i think the second day things start to come and down a little bit and i realized that temperatures you know you you scan these climate charts and you predict what it's going to be like but weather's not predictable. The world isn't predictable. Um, And it got too hot and I was starting to burn out there. The team came around me and they were just slapping sun cream on me at every opportunity, which was brilliant. Um, I think in day two as well, I started to run into roadworks, which again, it's one of those things you can't predict it. So in the warm-up attempts, in the trial runs Things like that had really bothered me and I'd had emotional reactions to them. I'd got angry at the team and I stopped at the side of the road having these tantrums like a child, like, where have you been? Why can't you catch up with me? And so we'd put interventions in place and I managed it and, and we got through them. But I started to lose time. And I think that got me into a mindset where I was constantly chasing, you know, like when you're asking for an extension on a deadline, but you can't have it. I remember that feeling. It was awful. If I could just have a bit more time, I could get more distance. But sleep was always a priority, so we couldn't do that. And day three was was similar. I remember descending through the Pyrenees and thinking, at least this day, you know, on a massive descent, you're going to descend over a 1,000 meters. It's going to be incredible. But those 1,000 meters went through three big tourist cities where I was caught in rush hour traffic in each one. I got separated from the team. There were so many delays and those expectations again, just kind of hit me. But then we went through a run of, of good days in France. And you start to realize that it's a bit like life. You get these highs and lows, these peaks and troughs, and sometimes you just can't put in the miles. And then days come along where you don't expect to put in the miles, but they come along and all you can do is give your best in the moment. So I guess that is what got us through Is these, yeah, start to realize that expectations are never going to play out how you think they're going to.
1: And also you mentioned then the test run, uh, that you had done just before setting off for the fastest cycle across Europe. You went off course, uh, with the GPS and obviously that kind of helped in the end because it let you adapt to these kind of situations. You also sustained nerve damage and the record was broken by Paul Spencer on the way to the airport. How are you feeling in that moment? Because that's a lot to take in just before you started. (laughs)
2: Yeah, um, I guess I was kind of maybe this is uh, one of the main things that came out of it that there there was very rarely one emotion that I was feeling. You quite often get these kind of opposing feelings or emotions in your body on on one side. I was quite confident going to the start line. Everything was in place. We'd already put off the record once because the funding wasn't in place about four months beforehand. So this was sort of the last opportunity for that year. So we were going to do this regardless. I felt like everything was in place. We were going to the start line to begin this record attempt, which theoretically on paper should have knocked a lot of time off the record anyway. So I wasn't too worried about the record having been beaten, but it was definitely in my mind. The bigger thing would certainly have been that nerve damage. So... On the trial run around the UK, I was putting in 270 miles a day for three days and it was by far the furthest that I'd gone. It was the first time that I'd trialed this out with a full support team doing stopovers in the night um, for nutrition and physio. It was genuinely a full dress rehearsal and on the third day, something just wasn't right. I think that over the course of training, I'd adapted. My body had physically changed since the beginning when I'd had the first bike fit and over those months the bike fit just wasn't appropriate anymore and I was sitting in a weird position which was probably really efficient but it just wasn't actually working for me so I came out of that trial run and my left knee and ankle were swollen up so badly the whole of the lowered left leg was really tense and it had compressed the nerve in there so I couldn't feel the toes on my left foot which for me was like, oh, this is an absolute nightmare. You know, I spent the last five weeks before we flew out just not being able to cycle at all, no more training. And in my mind, I was there going, this is the time when I need to put in those last training sessions. I could squeeze out that little bit more power. FTP can go up a little bit. My efficiency will be better. And again, it came down to the team, the physiotherapist at that time reassuring me that actually you won't gain that much fitness. What you need to be doing is making sure that you're on the start line in the best condition possible. Being reassured that there was no muscle damage, that the nerves would recover given time. The bike fitter reassured me that he would set me up on a bike that would get to the finish line. So there was a lot around me. The psychologist as well saying, you know, I'd been that person who had ruminated over all the difficulties. That was the person that I used to be. And we'd done so much work to get me to focus on the next chapter. Let's look at what we can control. What can we do going forward? So it was a big learning curve. And I think that that only really. Resolved itself after or on day four when, for the first time, like that was the first time that I went beyond that trial run distance. And I was truly then on my longest ultra endurance ride. And at that point, it settled all those nerves. Uh, another pun there for you. It settled, yeah, it settled those um, unsettled thoughts. That's interesting that you kind of get to the point which
0: is further than you've ever been before. And actually, that's settling because I, would almost intuitively think it'd be the other way around, which is I know that if I've done this distance, I can do this distance again. And I think, you know, I'm sure Robin's felt this as well, like doing any kind of psyching where it's like, I've done this before. I can't, I I don't, I'm not going to give up because I've done it before. But when you go past that, you transcend that boundary. Then you're in this unknown where surely then that's where all the doubts come in, which is like, I've never done this before. How am I going to do this? How am I going to get up tomorrow? This is mad. This is, and then by day six, you've done, double what you've ever done before. So, you know, is the nerve damage going to come back, you know, on day seven? Like, how do you how do you deal with that? I just, I see it as, you must have quite an incredible mind to see the unknown as something that's almost more relaxing to your to your situation than it is troubling.
2: Yeah, oh, that's beautiful, actually. I'd never considered it. Um, and I love the way these conversations, you know, when you chat through things and people see things from different points of view. Isn't that the beauty of the world? We're all so different. And maybe that is where that mindset came from, the unknown. Certainly in this situation, having gone up to day three and then having that nerve pain that stopped me, I wouldn't have been able to ride on day four, to get into day four and I was still riding, that was like that click of confidence and that we had fixed those problems. So that's where that came from, that the problems I envisioned happening weren't happening. We had the solution. And I think there is something beautiful in the unknown as well maybe that comes from going around the world where every single day I just didn't know what was coming. And it was almost a beautiful thing. Like, Strangely, it was almost the thing that kind of brought me home as well where stepping into the unknown in the beginning was the adventure. It was wonderful. And like every day you're learning something new, how to wild camp, how to learn a language, where do you get food from, where do you get water from, where are you going to sleep that night, who are you going to meet, and what's the culture going to give to you. But after seven years of doing that, that actually becomes your routine. And stepping into that unknown is something that I quite like. You are pushing yourself and you're learning something new. I guess that in these, I'm going to call them shorter um, adventures, the ultra-endurance, that does get compressed and it becomes the painful part that you have to work through. You really get the value of what you've learned afterwards. But, yeah, it's certainly something that I enjoy doing.
0: Yeah, so so you managed... In essence, you, know, you almost had sort of, in some senses, seven years of getting used to the unknown and thriving off it. But your body certainly didn't have seven years adapting to be the rider who can you know, average 250 miles a day, ride for 14 hours a day. I don't even know what the math is in terms of your average speed. How did you make that transition? What did you look like, I suppose, in terms of maybe some data when you came back? from around the world. And then I think probably, was it about a year or eight months or something after coming back from around the world, you're off again doing the race across Europe. So how did your body change between those
2: points? Where did you have to get to? Yeah, I guess it was quite a significant change. So, oh, how geeky do you want to get?
1: I love being geeky. We're
2: cyclists. Okay, (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Okay. I think when I came back from around the world, when I started training, I was about 75 kilograms. And hard to say what my FTP would have been then. We didn't really use FTP because I was training with all of this, every kind of scientific, technical, machine monitoring equipment that you could possibly have at the Human Performance Unit at the University of Derby. So I was hooked up to VO2 max masks and taking blood lactate. And everything was recorded through uh, this ergometer, which is a fixed static bike that's super amazing, like monitors everything, really specialized. I would imagine maybe my FTP might have been 290, something like that. And then over the course of the year... I would imagine it was roughly three forty, probably when I headed out there. Um, my VO two max was massive, though. I think it was up around eighty. Wow. Which, yeah, I guess the VO two max in some ways leads to the question of nature and nurture. I think we do have some of us are genetically predisposed to other th- things that are better than others. So I think that I, I just had a genetic, like, ability for ultra endurance. I would imagine that some of it is. Through that nurture though, like all those miles that I did across town when I was cycling to my mate's house after school, all those miles going around the world, I remember speaking to Michael Hutchinson about how you grow fitness and that he was saying that he'd once read that maybe it's just related to the amount of pedal strokes that you've put in in your life. And when I think about cycling around the world, I did a lot of pedal strokes. Like That was a long time in the saddle and you're just building up that efficiency But the way that I trained for the world record is completely different to anything that I'd done before and anything that I expected it to look like as well. I was watching ultra-endurance cyclists on social media, on YouTube, and they were putting in 20, 30, 40 hours a week, like going out and doing 12-hour rides. And my physiologist prescribed high-intensity training indoors in the lab where the first session was about an hour long. And I was like, this has got to be wrong. There's no way that it can work. But it was absolutely incredible to see the way that I changed over such a short amount of time. And it was because it was very specific to what I needed. So we ran a test. We did the test every six weeks. And then those six weeks in between became the training program. So I started out doing six repetitions at five minutes per rep, in vo2 max range and for me it was the hardest i've ever pushed i couldn't believe how difficult it was i couldn't hit the targets the first time round. i was furious it was all the emotional regulation going wrong like i think we started to learn a lot about my mental state as well as my physical state at that time and actually after the first session i went back to the physiologist i was like look clearly you've made some mistake with your uh, maths here you go away and figure out how you know give me something i can do and i will smash this out in the in the gym no problem and I remember in that session, he came back to me and said, actually, Lee, I can prove to you that everything that I've set you, you can achieve. And what you've hit is a psychological obstacle. And you've got to figure out how to get around that. He describes you know, the, the old hunter-gatherer analogy of you're out and you're foraging and you're hunting. And then you think that you're running at your maximum pace. And suddenly a lion jumps out and you find that extra gear. You've got something left in the tank. And I remember him saying to me, you've got to figure out your way of tapping into that. And it took a couple of weeks of going back. And every other day I was in the gym and I was trying to hit the target and trying and trying again, knowing that it was only me holding myself back. And eventually I hit that target, six reps, five minutes each. And I was like, oh yes, I've done it. And the reward for that is you get two more reps on the end and you've got to do eight. (laughs) And then you hit that and then you've got 10 and oh no, it's, Yeah. And then you retest and you see how far you've grown though. It's amazing. You have to push yourself again, like geographically going out of your comfort zone or in time, the amount of time you spend on a bike, the amount of countries that you go through, you're constantly pushing yourself out of your comfort zone, but you grow psychologically and physically. I worked with a nutritionist at the beginning as well, whose primary focus was on losing my weight. It's uh, one of the One of the lessons that I learned in team building as well is that everybody has to gel. And actually, we had two conflicting ideas in the team. 99% of the team wanted to increase my power, but the first nutritionist wanted to reduce my weight. And the two things didn't go hand in hand. When, um, When his weight loss program was so efficient and so effective that I lost, I went down to 66 kilos within a few weeks, maybe a couple of months. So that's, yeah, nine kilos lost, which is a big percentage of my weight. And I'm not going to like hide the fact that I actually quite liked it in a way. I could see myself starting to look like those Tour de France riders where your arms are spindled. Like there's no wasted weight on your body. It's all efficient. It's all for performance. But actually, it became really detrimental to my power output. I wasn't hitting the targets the rest of the team wanted. And actually, my friends started to reflect on my psychology as well. Like, I just wasn't the person that I used to be. I wasn't fun anymore. I was tired. I was kind of apathetic to everything, and so we had to revise all of that. So I guess one of the things that I learned is that you can make amazing improvements very quickly, but you have to do things in a holistic way. We had to look after my sleep. We had to look after my mental health because you you might be the fastest cyclist, but you've got to enjoy what you're doing as well, you know. And I think that a lot of athletes get into sports because it's what they love. They find themselves in it. It's their identity. There's passion. And when you get down to the details of improving, it it all becomes very specific. Rides aren't about fun anymore. And that's one of the things that I really lost. And we had to to tie back in those cafe rides. Every Saturday, I was out with the club and it was just about having fun, riding with the people that I love and remembering that I'm a human being beneath being an athlete. Like that's the core of it. And
1: when you're trying to break... world record I think after the first week you'd already been through six countries and you said there about rest and also enjoyment how do you balance I guess kind of this constant voice in your head that's like you're trying to break a world record world record world record like just keep pedaling versus sort of appreciating your surroundings and enjoying actually being on the bike and enjoying what you're putting yourself through like how do you balance those two
2: it's something I really struggled with in all honesty in that first world record. We did so much work on trying to accept myself and understanding my reactions in situations. From the beginning, I I loved it. Like I just loved being on the bike. I loved seeing the fruits of all that training. Like there's power in these legs and I just want to release it and it's wonderful and you see these great average speeds and you're cruising through countries and you see those Changes and the gradual changes on the bike, like it 's not like flying from one country to the next. you see those gradual changes in um, landscapes, and you hear those gradual changes in accents and languages and the smells of foods and and all of that and being immersed in the cycling was wonderful and when I love it it 's a great place to be in the saddle it 's when you 're not enjoying it that is the difficult thing and Honestly, coming out of that record, writing the book has given me the time to sit back and realize some of the things that I still needed to learn. I don't think anybody could say that they changed their life and they became the person that they wanted to be because of one challenge that they took on. But it was like a spark. It changed so much in me and it made me realize what else I wanted to work on. Five years later, so last year, four years later, I did a second world record and that was much more. About gratitude and about realizing, you know, I did realize after the world record about the impact that we have on each other going back home after the attempt and friends saying, you know, we watched you every day and it was great. I was showing our our friends the social media clips and where you are on the map. But the thing that really impacted me was when they said it wasn't about breaking the world record, it was about you gave us like something to believe in, you gave us hope. And that's really nice, like to to bring something like that to a group of friends was wonderful and so that became a bigger part of the second world record i i wanted to appreciate every moment that i went through you know sometimes you get so wrapped up in not achieving your targets and you're not going to hit that best case scenario and you want to be better but actually just accepting and and realizing that this challenge has given you the opportunity to work with amazing people and to technology that you'd never have got the opportunity to use and to go to places that you wouldn't have been. Like, I really wanted to have gratitude for every moment. So in the first record, the one that the book's about, it was difficult and I did let go of that sometimes and it it slipped through my hands. But I will never look back and think of that as a a weakness. It was kind of just an awakening. Yeah, it sounds very much like a kind of just necessary part of that process.
0: And then almost another necessary part is doing something like that again, so that then you can practice what that first part taught you. At the same time, you have also done something incredible in, in that moment. It's, you know, it's a, I'm sure it's a, it must feel great in terms of feeling, you know, knowing where you've been personally and where you've got to. But in terms of the you know, casual onlooker, such as myself or Robin, we're looking at you being like, bloody hell, mate, you've just gone from one thing to another because that's just nuts. So you did seven days of cycling, and you did 2,230 miles in seven days. A lot of people would think, well, oh, what possessed you? Couldn't you just leave it alone? Because that sounds even more horrific. But one of the things that struck <laughs> me in that record is I think you only, so you you beat the Race Across Europe record by more than eight days. But this record, the seven days, you only beat by 19 miles. Is that right? which is, that's a tiny, tiny mark, that's a tiny percentage. So you're going into day seven, presumably being like, it's pretty on the wire. How are you treating that last day? How do you not just like blow your legs off from the beginning, just desperate to get the record? Or feel like, uh, you know, I need to meet out my effort, but well, hang on, what if I just run out of time and I've still got energy in my legs and I should have gone harder? Like, How do you pace that last day? What did your team tell you and how did that kind of play out on the road? You
2: know, um, I should have broke the record by hundreds of miles. There was this, there was a hurricane that came through in the middle. (laughs) So everything this, yeah, when I go into a record, everything's planned out. Um, unless I was quite confident of breaking it, like significantly by bringing new technology and new science, like everything that we bring to it, there's so much that. We look at you mitigate any risks and you add all those marginal gains. So you're going into it knowing that you're going to ha- add a significant amount. um It was supposed to. I was supposed to add 200 miles. That was the proposal. The what we planned. And on day one, the strategy was perfect. We came out of that with so many miles in the bank. It was wonderful. On day two, the team took me to one side after I think 10 hours on the bike. They took me to one side and rightly, like, there's something we've got to tell you. And I was like. Can't be that bad. Come on, guys. You sound really serious. I've planned this out. the The road's perfect. No elevation. No junctions. It's it's ideal. The it's the perfect climber. You know, we've come out to the, to Florida. It's all planned out. Everything. It's all. It can't be anything that bad. Come on, tell me what it is. And they were like, "There's a hurricane coming." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, "It can't." Like in the in the preparation, I'd looked at that and. Only two hurricanes had ever hit Florida in November since records began in 1851. This should never have been like on the cards at all. And suddenly, again, like it had been in the first world record, all those great preparations come down to how you can play that out on the road. What do you do in a crisis situation? How does the team around you and how does your mindset play out? And one of the beautiful moments that I'll never forget about that second record was when they said, There's a hurricane coming. In my mind, I was like, well, you're going to have to drag me off the bike to stop me attempting this record. But I didn't know what they would, how they would react. And they said, we think we can break the seven-day record in six days. And I was like, no, like that's amazing to turn around and turn this adversity into an opportunity. So then every moment of day three, four, and five, it was all about risk management and what can we do to adapt the strategy? How can we get through this? And we came into days six and seven pretty much with, yeah, it was, the challenge was on there. And it wasn't about breaking a record. It was just getting to the end. And how do we just get to that record-breaking moment? And the team were amazing. They made, they adapted strategies through the night. The mechanic was working on the bike, even to the point where I woke up in the morning and he's re-greasing bearings. I'm like, is the bike ready to go now? And he's like, I'm not sure. Like, it was so, so much effort. It was unbelievable. And it came down to, I think there were, something like four hours to go it was the last it must be five because it was the last block of the last day and the team had, had always been broken into two teams team a and team b two people on each and they alternated through the day so that they could get a rest while the other team was working on the road well i say rest they were back at the house like preparing the food and doing whatever we needed to And on the last block, the whole team came together. And for the first time, we were together in convoy. There was me on the bike, Team A behind, and then Team B. And I remember like, even now, getting goosebumps thinking of everyone who believed in me. We'd all done everything that we could to get to that moment. We still had so far to go. And the physiologist came alongside and just shouted out, what's on the GPS at the moment? I can't remember what the number was. They went back and a couple of minutes later came alongside and gave me the number that I had to hit. And it was big. And at that point, she just shouted, This is Italy, empty the tank. And in every training session or every testing session, sorry, that we'd done in the lab at Loughborough that year, you get to this point in a uh, ramp test where you are on your limit. Like you think you've given everything. And it was always at that point when the physiologist had shouted, Okay, this is Italy, give it everything, empty the tank. And when that, was played out on the road as well. It was like that Pavlovian response. Like, okay, now I've got to give it everything. And, and I remember like sprinting after seven days. You've already put in 2,000 and 2,100 miles, whatever it was, and just ramping up the power and feeling that burn in my legs. And I was watching the speedo doing 25 miles an hour thinking, I can't hold this. What am I doing? This is wrong. Everything that you just said, like you emptying the tank. How do you monitor that output? But it was down to the wire. We had to give it everything. It was that moment when if a puncher or a mechanical came along and I hadn't been given it everything and we missed it by 30 minutes, like, could you forgive yourself? Like, it was absolutely all, like, all guns blazing, and it was full gas. And so for two hours, I just basically did a time trial and gunned it unbelievable to the point where we broke the record. It was amazing. The team didn't know what was on the GPS. They would just shouting out the car, like, how far to go? And it got to a point of five kilometers, and then four, and then three, and then two, and then one. Bang, we, we hit it. And it was the middle of the night. I was dripping with sweat. And I remember stopping on the bike. We had to um, document the moment that we broke the record. So we did a bit of film and then um, one of the team members came up behind and was like, Lee, that's amazing. You broke the record. Now it's time to add your bit to it. And I was <laughs> like, oh, no, I completely <laughs> forgot. Like, yeah, I've still got to add the bit to it. And just trying to pedal the bike again became so difficult. I'd, I'd given it everything. I'd emptied the tank, which was always the marker of success. Like, if you can get to the end and look back and say that you had nothing left to give, that is how you know, like, you've hit your best. And in that moment, that was it. And there was still time on the clock. There was still maybe an hour left to go. So I was like, i got to get going. And I just remember shouting to the team, I just need to find a downhill. Can you get me to a downhill? I can freewheel. And they're like, you found the flattest road in the world to do this <laughs> attempt on. Like, you can't. There's nothing. I was like, oh, no. And it got to like, I just had to spin the bike up. It's a TT bike. And I was trying to spin it up in the easiest gear and then freewheel and then spin it up again and freewheel. And it was the worst, the worst like that I've ever felt on a bike, absolutely empty, trying to drag any last scraps of energy out. But that, that's how we got those 19 miles onto the record in the worst condition possible. But to stand on the finish line and to look back and say, no regrets, I've given everything. It's a, an amazing feeling. And um and I think it's a really nice way to kind of summarize life as well. Like just thinking back to the times in my life when success for me in, in the beginning was this idea of living up to social expectations and it drove me into the ground and I wasn't happy with the person that I was. I was unfulfilled in life. To then be able to look back. And, and what you said is really, I'm really grateful for it that I've achieved so much in those few years because if I can like stand on the finish line of life and look back and say that I've given it everything, no regrets, Like for me, that's a successful life.
1: In terms of, I guess, if we look at those two world records, you just described them one of the worst days on the bike. But minus crossing the finish line, what has been one of the best days on the bike for you?
2: There's been some beautiful ones. And I think it's, uh, it might sound strange because what I pursue at the moment is those world records. But actually, I think the best days on the bike were those days of just pure like, being in the moment, pure loving it. The days when I was a kid, mountain biking—I'll always remember them. Like, I don't know if it's because it's that time in your life when every day's is summer, isn't it? I don't remember any winter days from my childhood. It's—it's dust it's being kicked up under mountain bike wheels, and the the gears and the chains clattering over the roots, and the the sun coming in through the trees. Like, they were beautiful moments, hanging out with your friends, sharing a passion. It was lovely, and and it was similar for me on round the world. It was about being in beautiful places and meeting amazing people and opening up new opportunities. like They were great days. I remember descending from Tibet into Nepal, going around the world. It was, it was like the world came to life after being in this frozen, frigid world of like, it was almost black and white some days with this blue sky over it and descending into this tropical jungle of Nepal with prayer flags and incense and temples and monkeys and realizing how far I'd got on a bike like I'd cycled from this industrial city in the middle of England to Nepal like how is that possible that was absolutely spectacular I think they are the days yeah what I look for at the moment is is much more introspect it's uh it's opening up something inside of me where I've explored outside into the world now I'm exploring inside of me and and some of the other avenues that you can take but the days that you love on a bike sometimes i think it it almost always is those unexpected days when you're just out with a group of friends and it's one of those actually oh, go for a ride today yeah and then the sun comes out and you're on the top of a hill and you've got there with your friends and you just don't need anything else do you it's, yeah it's beautiful yeah
0: absolutely i can i think a lot of listeners can relate to that lee thank you so much for spending some time with us and um yeah, telling us your amazing stories. I We could go on for a long, long time, I think, because there's so much I'd like to drill into. But just the last question is, and it's the most obvious question of all, really, what's next? Because you've gone, in my mind, you've gone from seven years cycling around the world, having beautiful moments, riding, as you just described, riding through the pool with prayer flags and incense. And then you've actually got Pretty into the nitty gritty, and you're doing numbers and you're riding, uh, you know, you've gone from your steel Mercian to your Cervelo S3 aero bike, and then you've gone another layer deeper. You've gone deeper into that rabbit hole and you're on a Trek TT bike and you're working, you know, you're, you're developing uh, aero positions and seven days. How far can you ride? So I'm feeling like, are we about to see an hour record from you or something like that? I know you're working with the guys <laughs> at What
2: at what Shop. You, you know, da- Dan Bigam is you big in the scene know with Dan the top guys. <laughs> yeah yeah well yeah for that reason i can't possibly take away from his amazing work can. you can take
1: away from gunners <laughs>
2: <laughs> um i think i might have to leave that with them too they are the world's best it's amazing watching what they do and i feel so privileged to be just a small part of it to be a part of dan's journey for dan to be a part of what i've done and he's introduced me to amazing people. And maybe that actually leads into the next thing. I feel like I've done so many solo things. At the moment, I'm getting back into just the love of cycling. I want to be immersed in the cycling community. I want to meet more cyclists, get out and do more things. So for the next year, I want to yeah, get into some more races. I've never really raced professionally. I don't think that I. It, it's not something I want to really pursue, but I just love being part of the scene. So a few cyclocross cross races, I like the idea of doing some ultra endurance races. I should be cut out for that maybe some mountain bike events, some of those 24-hour races. I want to kind of pull out the, the quirky ones that are interesting. Yeah. Meet some people, learn some things about myself. But as far as the next challenge, and there will be one for sure, I think that I'll always need a challenge. I'm not going to say it will always be in cycling, but I think a challenge gives me a bit of focus and it pushes me to find new things out. I feel like the seven years was sort of the first chapter, if you like. And I I went out and, like I said, sort of explored the diversity and the variety and just the extents of what's out there in the world and almost my place in it, if you like. And then I came back and did that same exploratory journey, but within myself and explored who I can be and what is the best version of myself and how do you define best? What do you want to be and how do you pursue that? And the next bit, I feel like it's more about bringing the two together almost – that little bit that I spoke about on everything that people do impacting each other, I wonder if I did an attempt and instead of being alone out there, what if I could do that seven-day world record? I'm not saying that that would be the one i do, but for like for like, I wonder if, I wonder what the impact would be if I had my friends and my family and people that I knew or people that I didn't know, but a group of people around supporting me, if I could wake up And share some time with them and then go out on the road and they were there at the roadside and they could see when I was down and they could cheer me on and then we could finish every day reflecting on the ways that it had impacted each other. Maybe friends who play in a band are there at the side of the road and like there's just, you know, community. I think that that maybe in in nourishing myself, my soul, my spirit, I don't know, with something more than a strategy and the perfect conditions. Maybe there's something in humanity and bringing people together to create something better altogether. That's sort of it's what I'm thinking about for the next thing. I don't know quite how it looks, but I like the idea of involving more people and being a part of something bigger.
1: That's beautiful.
2: Oh, thanks.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Well, that is a fantastic note to end on. And I, you know, I, I have every faith that you will do that. So I'm, I'm going to be glued to seeing what happens next for, for Lee. So thank you again, Lee, for coming on the Cyclist Magazine podcast. And yeah, best of luck with the next challenge. Well,
2: thanks so much. I'm really grateful for being a part of this with you. And um, maybe you can be involved in the next thing. Who knows what it is, but I'd love you to be there.
0: Absolutely. Just give, give us a shout. We'll we'll both be there. Robin rides track. So, uh, you know, you have to get something that's relatively flat or she'll be spinning
2: out on yeah. all of the descents, <laughs> but nailing us. Yeah. I'll
1: be off in a nightmare.
2: <laughs> well, we've got a velodrome here in, in Derby, Robin. So I'll see you down there.
1: You'll see me there, mate.
2: <laughs> Legend. Thank you so much for having me.
1: Well, that was Lee Timmis and his amazing life story. Thank you very much, Lee. James, how inspirational was that? Because I just I feel like I could get up and do a marathon right now. I mean, I won't because I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> how was it for you? Uh,
0: on a scale of uh, one to I should quit my job and try and do something more meaningful with my life. That was yeah, handy in my resignation kind of thing. I really, First off, he just has lived the dream which I've had and I think everyone must have had that has a desk job where you just think, yeah, I'm going to just stop doing this and I'm going to pick up my bike and I'm just going to ride. I'm going to Forrest Gump it, ride and ride and ride and ride and ride and see how far I get. And the fact he did it for seven years, I just think is amazing. And I'd love to have him back on the pod because that was a, a lovely chat that effectively spans 16 days of his life. So imagine, imagine how long we could do a seven-year chat. <laughs> yeah.
1: I loved his openness.
0: Yeah, his openness. His openness is, again, like we said at the top of the show, it's on the uh, Matty Mohorovic level of just being like incredibly frank about what it means to do this. And yeah, just another person who I really rate more and more these days when people just want to talk about, you know, mental health battles, just like having stuff that goes on in your life and then talking about what that was and then how you kind of dealt with it. I think that's a really, oh yeah, that's, that's, a lot of the bit that I find most inspirational, I think. But it did make me think of, you know, your hardest day on the bike. It's a question, as a terrible journalist who asks terrible journalist questions to professional riders, I've asked people before. I'm going to ask you, Robin, what's your hardest day on the bike? So I know that you used to ride track, amongst other things. So I reckon you got some stories. The velodromes are quite scary. That's true. The
1: velodrome is kind of scary. So for those who don't know, I used to ride Track after uh, being inspired at the 2012 Olympics, Laura Trot, Joe Roussel, Danny King, all those great people. And I remember I said to my parents, I want to do this. So we headed to the velodrome for a taster session. And it's one of those things where you probably shouldn't have done it, but you look down because there's access at like the top of the velodrome and you look down from the highest point, you know, the bend when it goes around. And you're like, oh my goodness. <laughs> What have I signed myself up for? (laughs) (laughs) And that was that very first taster session. And I then went on to join the clubs. But getting used to the whole drop handlebars, no brakes, fixed gears, getting used to the mechanic side of things, I say, was probably one of the hardest days on the bike because I don't really go out on the road. I mean, I know you were joking before, like you're a journalist in the cycling industry who doesn't know a lot about the pro side. I'm the opposite. I'm a, I love the pro side, but in terms of actually getting out and doing it myself, I whisper it, but I don't, I don't do a lot. Um, kind of scared of the road. <laughs> so in terms of the track side, that first one definitely was probably the hardest. And I remember feeling so overjoyed actually that I got through it. I was like, wow, that was amazing. Um, So I would probably say I would probably say that first day at the Manchester Pillow Show was was my biggest one. What about you? I bet you've got some absolute corkers of stories.
0: Uh, I mean, most of them just kind of like highlight my own stupidity slash naivety about cycling. Um, I think probably one that springs to mind, I, I for a long time in the kind of earliest days of cycling, I just assumed that you could ride, the more you ate, the longer you could ride for, basically. So it wasn't necessarily the hardest day on a bike particularly, but it was... It was incredibly grueling, and I'm sort of embarrassed to even admit it. But it was this Italian sportive, and halfway round of however long it was, 200k or something, I'm feeling like I'm feeling the burn. So I just like eat more food, and by sort of like the last, I don't know, I've got maybe two feed stations to go, and I'm so worried that I'm not going to have enough food to get to the end. Because I've just got it in my head. If you keep eating, you can keep pedaling and you'll get to the end. As opposed to thinking, no, you've depleted all of your glycogen in your cells, and there's nothing left. Sorry, mate, you've bonked. So there I am, eating loads of food, but I'm really worried that this is going to be, I'm not going to get another feed station for ages. So I just start stuffing various things into my jersey pockets, and they're full. And then because it's in Italy, they've got cured meat paninis, which are very thin. And then I think like, and this is, you know, you've just got to think like I'm a precursor to current fashion trends. Didn't have pockets in bib shorts in those days. So I slid them up the inside of my bib short thighs and wore them, wore the paninis down the side of the thigh and proceeded to eat them. And there was even one left over the finish line, which I ate when I stopped. And at that point, I'd, I'd met up with our photographer because this was for the magazine. And he was literally just like, what the f*** are you doing? And uh, yeah, we might have to beep out that word. But you can all, you know, you can all imagine what it was. <laughs> so there we go. So learning curves, hardest days on bikes. Um, yeah, grueling, sweating away.
1: So was it, were the Paninis like kind of lukewarm then? Like were they hot when you got them and then colder at the finish? Or was it just kind of...
0: No, warmer than when they arrived or when they were served and saltier as well. So they're full of electrolytes, my own electrolytes. So there we go, live and learn. That's cycling, isn't it?
1: just recycling your electrolytes it's very conscious of you
0: yeah I mean just as a side note like that little mouse that lives in the desert that has incredibly highly toxic urine because it just filters its water over and over again because there's not very much water in the desert
1: oh well I can't wait until the next podcast
0: with you because I want to learn more
1: about this mouse <laughs> I'm so enthralled
0: <laughs> on that note I'm going to go and do some proper research and find out what it's called But Robin, thanks so much for joining me and uh, I look forward to the next time.
1: Bye.
3: Like a lot of riders, I've tried loads of training plans, but I often find them too rigid and complicated. But join is a bit different. You put in your availability to train each week and your goal, like riding the ATAP, for example, and then join Reverse Engineers, a training plan specific to your needs.
0: But the really smart thing is how Join adapts your training plan as you go. So if you miss a session or you end up doing like a recovery ride or it's an interval day, then Join retailers your training plan so you can still hit your goal.
3: It's really simple to use and workouts sync to everything from Garmin's and Wahoo's to Strava and Zwift. Or you can pair Join to a power meter or smart trainer for instant workouts.
0: Join comes as an app. And right now, listeners of The Cyclist Podcast can save a third on a six-month join subscription. So that's six months for the price of four. Just check out the link in our show notes and start training with join. Don't forget that The Cyclist Magazine podcast isn't just a podcast. The clue is in the magazine bit. We were a magazine first and we still are. We're a monthly magazine. And right now, you can subscribe for three issues for five pounds. Just check out cyclist.co.uk. And there's also a really quite impressive little offer at the moment that we've got running, which is subscribe and get a sportful hot pack gilet, which is a very, very light Gilet, which apparently I know I've got the jacket version and that had 60 kilometers of yarn in it, because that's how thin the thread is. And this is a Gilet version. So it's probably, you know, it hasn't got the arms, but it's probably got about 40k in it. But they're really, really good. They're weatherproof, windproof, all that jazz. I can absolutely vouch for it. It's a £75 free gift for subscribing, ladies and gents. So check out cyclist.co.uk and subscribe to our lovely magazine now.